Well, as, as many, most, if not all of you know, uh, my time here as a pastor is coming to an end. We have just a few weeks left. It turns out we have five weeks left. Lord willing, my last day in the pulpit will be February 2nd. And I, I, spent, I spent some time trying to, t- trying to figure out, you know, how do, how do I want to end this as far as, as sermons go? You know, what, what do I want to spend my time on? Do I want to do something simple, maybe go back to the Psalms like I, like I started my ministry here with? Do I want to maybe do something in Luke? Do I want to, you know, go back to the old, you know, I, I spent time thinking about what I want to do. And I realized that sort of in the back of my mind, one of the, one of the things that I've wanted to do is to preach through the Lord's Prayer. It's something that we, we say every week as a church. And if, if we're not careful, if we don't spend time thinking about what it is, it can become just a rote memorization recitation thing. I don't have a problem with saying it every week. I think saying it every week is a really, really good thing. But my hope is, my prayer is, that through these next five weeks, that the word that we hear from the Bible implants on my heart, implants on your heart, so that every time we say the Lord's Prayer, we are thinking about what the Lord's Prayer actually says. We are reminded of what it means and why the words are what they are. You may have noticed earlier in the service that where we normally say the Lord's Prayer after the invocation, we did not say the Lord's Prayer. I just said amen and we moved right into the Apostles' Creed. That was intentional. I did not forget that. After this, after this sermon and for the next five weeks, Lord willing, after each of these sermons, I want to say the Lord's Prayer together with a fuller and fuller understanding each time. But we're going to start with the first two little phrases, one, two phrases, depending on how you count. Our Father who art in heaven. Those, those few words, those six words or whatever it is, they contain a paradox. A paradox. Now, whether you know what a paradox is or not, maybe, you have, uh, maybe you've heard it's one thing, but my definition of a paradox this morning is two things that are seemingly at odds that are both true. Two things that are seemingly at odds that are both true. For example, just a simple one. I went to high school with a guy who was six foot six. We went to a small high school, it was a small Christian school up in Saginaw. So everyone who wanted to play on the sports teams played on the sports teams. We usually didn't quite have enough for soccer, so we had to like, encourage some extra people to play. And for basketball, usually we had just enough for a full team. And this guy, this guy played you know, on the basketball team. And you would, you would think, being six foot six, that he was good at basketball. He was not good at basketball. He wasn't awful, at least not compared to the rest of us who went to this tiny Christian school. He wasn't, you know, terrible. But he was, he was tall and lanky and, you know, kind of all elbows and skinny. And even though he was tall, you know, the expectation is, oh, you're good at basketball. Well, he, he really wasn't. He was, he was fine. You know, he would always start the games in order to kind of intimidate the other teams. But then, you know, he'd get pulled after a few minutes and, and that, would, that would be about it for him. There's a paradox in there. He is tall, and he is not that great at basketball. Two things seemingly at odds with each other, both are true. 
Theology is actually full of these. You find them all over the place. For example, the Trinity, right? One of the core doctrines of the Christian faith. God is three persons, yet God is one being. How does that work? I don't know. It's a good question. It's one of those things that's sort of above our pay grade, and I don't think we're ever going to find out how all of that works. But we know that Jesus is God. We know that the Holy Spirit is God. We know that all three of them are not the same person, but they are all united together in the same being because there is only one God. How does that work? I'm not sure. But there are different statements seemingly at odds with each other, and both are true. Another example is, is the Word of God, the Bible that we have, that we're holding in our laps, that we hear read. Is the Bible a human book or is the Bible a divine book? Well, it's both, isn't it? The Bible was written by human beings, but it is the very Word of God to us. And what we tend to do with these paradoxes, things that are, you know, in tension with each other, seemingly at odds, is we tend to look at one side or the other, and we gravitate more to one or the other. For example, with with the Word of God, you know, with the rise of modernism in the late 19th and early 20th century, there were a lot of people who said that, you know, the Bible is... You know, it's just an ordinary book. Maybe it has some inspirational stuff in there. Maybe it contains the Word of God, and you have to kind of go looking for it. But they they kind of brush aside the fact that the Bible is the Word of God, and the entire thing is God's Word to us. Let me say that up front. But they they kind of brush aside that side, and they, they emphasize the human aspect of it. And we, being, you know, conservative, reformed folk, we tend to focus, because of that, you know, the the modernism that brushes aside the, you know, the Word of God, we tend to say, well, no, it's God's Word for us. And we're right. That's a good thing to focus on. But sometimes we slide so far over that we kind of ignore or we lose a little bit the human aspect of it. We, we think, maybe passively, I don't think any one of us actually thinks this, but you know, we treat the Bible as if it you know, was this thing that descended from heaven and, and is supposed to be completely timeless. But in reality, the Bible is a human book as well as a divine book that was written by humans in a certain time to humans in a certain time for specific issues that they faced. And it's absolutely God's word for our benefit, but we also have to spend time kind of getting to the place where we, where we study ancient cultures in order to understand the Bible in a fuller way. The Bible is human and divine, and we can't choose one or the other. We need both, even though those two statements are seemingly at odds with each other. They are both true. It's paradox. The Lord's Prayer, this first line of the Lord's Prayer, we'll get into the petitions, the actual requests in the coming weeks, but this first line tells us who we are praying for, and there are two things in there that are seemingly at odds, but are both true. Our Father, who is in heaven. See, God is both our Father and the sovereign King above all things. And depending on our you know, religious tradition, depending on you know, how we grew up, our relationships with our own fathers, depending on you know, all of these different things, we tend to gravitate towards one or the other. 
We tend to view God as either this God who is far off and above all things or this God who loves us intimately. But in reality, we can't miss either one of them. Both are true. Both are central to how and why we pray. God is both sovereign and our Father. I want to focus on the, on the second little bit of, of this opening, um, opening address in the Lord's Prayer, the who art in heaven. And I'm not going to use all the old-timey English words throughout this. Well, I'll just say who is in heaven and, and spare us that. Um, but our Father, who is in heaven. What does it mean to be in heaven? What, what is that? You know, why, why is that here? What images are supposed to come to mind? Well, I think of, and I think that, you know, the disciples would have thought about, right? The, the vision that Isaiah had in Isaiah chapter 6. If you're not familiar with this, the prophet Isaiah is caught up to heaven and he sees the God who created all things enthroned, right? Glory shining from around him on this massive throne, crowds and angels singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. There are the seraphim, right? These angels with six wings, and two of the wings are covering their face because they can't bear to look at the glory of God. Two of their wings are covering their feet because the feet in, in a Middle Eastern culture, because, you know, you walk around and then you get sandy and get gross, the feet are considered to be, you know, dirty or unholy. So they cover their feet, right? That's why, um, you know, Moses takes off his feet, takes off his feet, that, he does not take off his feet. That would, be, that would be extreme. Moses takes off his sandals when he's at the burning bush because you know, the place that he's at is holy ground. He can't have those gross sandals kicking around. That's why you know, in George Bush in 2004 when he was having, might not have been 2004, but the press conference where they throw a shoe at him, that, that's where that comes from because the feet, the shoes are gross. In some cultures in the Middle East today, you can't even like, show the bottom of your foot to someone because it's, it's considered a shameful thing. This is a tangent that's going too far. But that's why the seraphim covered their feet. And with two of their wings, they fly, and they just give glory to God above. There's this image of God enthroned in heaven, powerful, above all things, deserving all glory, all praise. This is the God to whom we pray. I have needs, and we all have needs, because we are human. If I'm without air for a number of minutes, I will die. If I go without water for a number of days, I will die. If I go without food for a number of weeks, I will die. I have needs. I have to maintain my existence. God does not have needs. He does not need to breathe air. He does not need to eat food. He just is. There was a point in time where I did not exist. You know, prior to some time in 1989, I just didn't exist. And a series of, a series of events happened to come together to create my existence. God has no such things that caused his existence. He just is. He doesn't have to maintain his existence. Nothing causes his existence. He is just the God who exists outside of time and outside of space. Because even time and space itself, the laws of physics even, are created by God's word. Everything that exists that is not him is created by him. We read about that a few minutes ago in John 1. All things that exist proceed from him. 
right? If I want to make something, you know, if I want to, say, build a table, I go to Home Depot, or if I'm being honest, I go to Ikea and buy a set, which I'll probably also screw up, and I, and I make something, right? You know, I, you know, I put the pieces together, and I read the instructions, and I, you know, totally screw the thing up. But if it goes well, right, I'll, have a, I'll have a table or a bookshelf or a chair or whatever it is. And I can say that I made it, but did I really? No, I, I assembled it. I put it together from pieces that were previously made. None of us can make anything out of nothing, but God can. In fact, everything that exists was made by him out of nothing. He didn't use any previous materials that existed before he came into being. Because the only thing that always has been and just is, is God himself. And because of this, he has all power. There's a verse in the Psalms that I should have, I should have looked to or I should have looked up beforehand. It says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. God does whatever pleases him. This is why we pray to the God who is enthroned in the heavens. This is the God to whom we pray in the Lord's prayer. He is our God. He can do whatever he wants. He is sovereign over all things. That's the one side of the paradox. God is big. God is powerful more powerful than we can ever imagine, and God is also our Father. Our Father. The word sort of underneath our Father, even though the New Testament was written in Greek, Jesus probably spoke these words in Aramaic, and the word he probably would have used there is a word that you may very well be familiar with, Abba. Not a familiar word to us. You may, you may know that, you know, some people will say that it means daddy or something along those lines. I think maybe a slightly better translation would be dada. Because right? when, when a little kid is learning how to talk, and my little son is, you know, just over a year old, and he's just kind of babbling and, you know, just putting sounds together, and I have no idea if he means anything by them. I'm sure some he does, some he doesn't. But as, as a kid is learning and putting those sounds together... The simplest sounds they make, they pair with some of the, the earliest and most central concepts that they have, which is the mother and the father. That's why our word for mother and father is mama, dada, because those are the first words that a little kid can say. The Aramaic word Abba is no different. It would have been the first, if not one of the first words that a little Jewish kid would have learned to say. Abba. The picture here is of, of a kid, you know, 18 months old, crawling up on his father's lap and saying, Abba, I need something. That is what our Heavenly Father is to us. The word, the word Father, the word Abba, kind of shows us two things. It, it shows a deeply personal connection with the Father, and an utter reliance on the Father. Right? If I, if I, you know, leave my son, you know, if I'm going somewhere, I can't leave my son at home and tell him, hey, buddy, food in the fridge, you know, there's a bottle of milk in there for you. If you get hungry, just warm it up, and then you can have it. And I leave and for several hours and come back. That's not going to work well, right? Because he needs my care. He needs me and my wife to provide for him. 
He has an incredibly deep reliance on us. And hopefully, one day, there's going to come a point where, you know, he doesn't need to rely on us. And hopefully, eventually, we can, we can rely on him when we need that. But for now, he needs his data. And he's not saying that quite yet. Sometimes we're thinking it. Anyway, he needs his dad. He needs his mom. There's an utter reliance there, an incredibly deep personal connection. And we, if we believe in Christ, we are the children of God. That's why we read John 1 before we got going, because John 1 says the following. He came to his own. This is Jesus. Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Not all are God's children. Some people will say that. Well, aren't, isn't everyone God's child? No. We are God's child if we have received him, if we believe on his name, if our faith and trust is in him. Then, and only then, are we adopted into God's family. And he loves us and treats us just like a child would be treated by their father. A paradox. Two things seemingly at odds with each other, but both are true. And we tend to gravitate towards one side or the other, but we have to, we have to stay in the middle. We have to let them be in tension with each other. We, we tend to either view God as this big, sovereign, scary God who's above all things, or this God who is incredibly personal and, and connected to us. And God is both. We can't move to one side or the other. But here, here's the beautiful thing. Where those two things have a connection, where they intersect, it's incredibly beautiful. Jesus tells, Jesus tells a story uh, in, in Luke 11. Uh, the Lord's Prayer is, you know, the version that we pray is found in, in Matthew, more or less. And then there's another version that's a little bit different, that, you know, just as inspired in, in Luke 11. And after Jesus, you know, gives that version of the Lord's Prayer, he goes on and tells a, a story. It's a parable. It's an illustration. And I, I always think it's hilarious because it pictures two guys. They're both, they're both neighbors. They're both friends. And, and the one guy gets visitors in the middle of the night. You know, and Middle Eastern hospitality, right? If we got visitors in the middle of the night, it could be, you know, the closest relative. We'd be like, go away, go find a hotel, I'll feed you in the morning, right? Middle Eastern hospitality, you don't do that. You get guests, you put them up, you cook for them, you treat them well. That's what they did. It reminds me, I went over to, I'm going on a lot of tangents today, but it's worth it. I, my youth pastor was Italian, like his parents were like from Sicily. And whenever I went over to his house, I had a close relationship with my youth pastor. His, his mom would be up, like cooking for us. We got there at like 10 o'clock at night and she's just in the kitchen, just making all kinds of food, like shoving it down, shoving it down our throats because she's Italian and that's what you do. And it's a similar thing with, with the culture over here. Anyway, like you get, you get uh, a visitor in the middle of the night and you've got to feed them, but you don't have any food because you forgot to go to Meyer. right? So you, you go over to your neighbor's house and you knock on his door and you're like, hey man, call him Ben, I don't know. Hey Ben, I need your help. I'm out of food. Can I borrow some cereal? What's Ben going to do? Ben's going to ignore you. Ben's going to pretend like he's asleep, right? That's what you, it's two in the morning. Your neighbor's knocking on your door. You're going to pretend you don't hear him. You know, you can be the nicest guy in the world. You guys can be as friendly as you want to, as close as you want to during the day. But if he's knocking on your door at 2 a.m., you're going to pretend you haven't heard him and you're going to try to go back to sleep. But if he keeps knocking, you're going to get to a point where you can't go back to sleep. 
And so you get up and you try to get them to go away. You're like, hey, man, go away. It's two in the morning. Come back and get food for me tomorrow. But you're like, no, I have guests right now. I have to feed them. Eventually, Ben's going to give you the cereal that you asked for. Is Ben going to give you the cereal you asked for because he cares deeply about you as a human being? No. No, in fact, at that moment, he really, really, really doesn't like you because you just woke him up and dragged him out of bed for something stupid. But is Ben going to give it to you? Yes. Jesus goes on in Luke 11 to say, if a neighbor will do that for a friend, how much more will your heavenly Father give you everything that you need? When a little kid crawls up on the lap of his father and he says, Abba, can I have some bread? Is the father going to give him a stone and laugh at the kid? Be like, oh, you want some bread? This looks kind of like some bread. Ha, 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 ha. Have fun with it. No! No, he's going to give the kid what he needs. He's going to do everything he can for that child. Because that's what a father does. A father is going to do everything that he can for his child. But there are limits to that power. Because there are things that I cannot do for my son that I wish that I could do. And that they're, you know, ordinary, everyday fathers wish that they could do, but they could not. But on the other hand, we have this image of power, this image of sovereignty. And this is going to be, this is going to be sort of a, um, a kind of a broken illustration. It's not going to quite fit because humans are not God, but, but bear with me. There, there are very powerful people in the world today. Powerful politicians, heads of state, Donald Trump. Powerful men because they are, they are wealthy. You know, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates. Powerful people because they control media empires. Rupert Murdoch. These men can do things for my children, can do things for you and your loved ones that I cannot. Right? Donald Trump can appoint my son to be the ambassador to Moldova or Slovenia or some Eastern European country where nothing's going to happen, and he just goes over and eats caviar and does nothing all day. That can happen. Right? Bill Gates can call up Harvard or Yale, which my son's never going to get into. Well, maybe if he you know, works hard, but probably not going to get into because I don't have the money, I don't have the connections. Bill Gates can call him up and be like, hey, can you take this guy? And they'll be like, yeah, sure, done. Write a check, name, name a building after you, you know, just do that whole thing. Powerful people have connections that I do not, and they can do things for my child that I can't, that I would love to have done for my child. And I, I would love it if, you know, there's just a trust fund for my son that he could just live off of for the rest of it. That'd be beautiful. Never have to worry about things. It's not going to happen. He's going to have to work for his bread just like we all do. So ask the question, and this is, this is obvious, but ask the question. Why don't you know, Donald Trump or Rupert Murdoch or Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or whoever, whoever is in your mind, why don't they do something for my son? They can, right? Why don't they? No, because they don't love him. Right? And of course they don't love him. They don't, they don't know him. He's just another kid to them. Why don't I do those things for my son? Well, because I don't have the power. I don't have the ability. I don't have the means to do those things. I can make sure my son's belly's full. I can hug him when he cries. But I can't, you know, pave the way completely for him to have the life that I wish that he could have. But God is more powerful than any other human being combined. He can do what he wants. He spoke everything out of existence, out of nothing. 
God, in fact, loves my son more than I love my son, which blows my mind because I don't know how that's possible, but it is. He loves each one of us if we are his children, if we put our faith and trust in Christ, and only then God loves us more than we will ever know. And if God loves us, and if God can do all things, will he not give us whatever is best for us? This is the God that as we bring our petitions to him, this is the God that we are praying to. We find this intersection of the powerful God who loves us. We find this intersection most potently at the cross. Now, we as human beings could not save ourselves as much as we tried. The Old Testament is littered with people who have tried to save God's people and have failed at saving God's people. So God himself had to come down, take on full humanity, live the life that we could not live, die the death that we deserve to live, and raise from the dead in order to bring us to God. God, who is all-powerful, who can do all things, and who loves us, stooped low in the person of Jesus to save us from our sins. Because God loves us, because God is all-powerful, he will grant us every single one of our requests that is holy and right and good in this life or the next. Let me say that again. God will grant us every one of our requests that are holy and right and good in this life or the next. And again, in the coming weeks, we'll, we'll spend more time talking about the requests themselves. But when we bring a request to God, God never says no out of spite. He may say, wait. You know, we see that all the time. We pray for healing for loved ones, but loved ones die. But we know that in the next life, God will raise them from the dead if they trust Christ, and he will, he will heal their bodies. And we trust that God will answer those prayers, whether there's a miraculous healing in this life or it happens in the next one. There may be requests, right? Like, you know, like how your, your dog really wants chocolate you know, and asks for it a lot whenever you're eating chocolate? But chocolate's really bad for him. So if you love your dog, you're not going to give him chocolate. There may be requests that we have towards God that he says, no, you don't know this, but it, it's bad for you, and he may say no. But every request that is good and right and holy, he will answer. He will grant in this life or the next. So let us come to him in prayer. Let us ask him for the things that he encourages us to ask for. Let us ask that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let us bring to him our needs. Let us bring to him the things that are on our hearts. Let us come to him in prayer because he is our father who is in heaven and he will give us what we need. Let's pray together, finally, the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, together saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.